Bitcoin mining, Lyft, Restoration Hardware, Charles Schwab, and Jake Burton Carpenter on this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of News Entrepreneurs Experience. Yep, that's right. This is the second podcast that I do every week, and it has got a little bit of a different format. During the weekdays, I pick a headline that I think entrepreneurs can relate to if they are trying to fix, fund, or grow their business. And I pick a headline and try to put a little narrative into it that... um, relates or associates the news article with what entrepreneurs might be experiencing. And my thinking there is that I spend a lot of time talking with entrepreneurs and uh, always sharing a lot of examples. And it seems to be that sharing examples of what other companies or entrepreneurs are doing is the best way for an entrepreneur to maybe examine or challenge the own, their own issues that they're having or their own struggles that they're having. And so this episode is my way of picking off some things that you're either going to be inspired by or challenged by. But either way, hopefully you find the episode helpful. And if you're ever looking for a heads up on what I'll be talking about in the episode, you can take a look at my uh, blog where I do a written form of this. Um, Allows me to kind of flesh my thinking out a little bit before I get to the actual podcast episode. And... um, the first episode was last week, and it was great, and uh, had a little bit of feedback uh, on it, and uh, the one uh, comment that I think resonated with me the most was one where an entrepreneur said, look, I don't really have time to keep up on what's going on with the world, so it's great just to get little sound bites with a little bit of an entrepreneurial uh, flavor uh, spun into them, and so thanks for doing that, Dylan, and I hope he's listening to this week's episode as well. So let's get started with the first story which I thought was, in fact, I found this story two weeks ago, and I only wrote on it, I think about a week ago, but it was just so brilliant. And it was, um, it was about a company, let me just get their name here so I don't make sure I don't mess, mess this up at all. Um, but it was incredible, I just, I just thought, wow, this is, I mean, that's how you build a business. So the company is a Canadian company called Upstream Data, And a little bit of background, which I couldn't really speak to in the blog very much, but Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining requires that hardware, so imagine like a a computer, if you will, but a really powerful computer, uh, needs to run, needs to keep itself cool, and in order to do that requires a ton of electricity and a ton of power. And so this little company, Upstream Data, actually I don't know if they're little or not, but this company Upstream Data is doing something so very cool. Um, If you are here in Alberta, which is where I'm based, you would know, of course, how, uh, or you should know, how oil wells work. But when um, companies go ahead and drill uh, a hole in the ground, they pull up oil, natural gas becomes a byproduct that they don't really have a lot of use for. And a lot of times when these oil wells are in remote areas or in a farmer's field and they're not tied into any kind of pipeline, then what oil companies will do is they'll vent Uh, out of a stack, they will just vent the gas into the air. But that's a little bit troublesome because there are laws and regulations about how much they can vent into the air. And in some cases, a well can be producing um, 
enough gas that really it doesn't make any sense to vent it because they can't vent enough of it to get to the oil and and so it becomes problematic so these there's these all these oil wells scattered everywhere and they're venting natural gas um, into the atmosphere but they're not you know it's not the best way to do it and it's not incredibly productive or efficient for the oil company so along comes upstream data and says you know what i think we know what we can do with that natural gas uh we're going to use it to power a gas electric generator. So we're going to put a device on top of the stack, and as that gas is being let off, it's going to be used to produce electricity. That electricity, in turn, is going to power these cryptocurrency mining computers, and and we will make money because as we mine cryptocurrency, it, it has a value, it has some value to it, and you know what? We're even going to share that value with the oil company that let us put this uh, um, gas electric generator on the well. And so talk about just an incredibly smart idea about how to take what one business knows no, you know, has no use for and turning it in, not into an opportunity, but turning it into real revenue. I mean, this is, I, I thought this was pretty incredible, uh, mostly because I've, I've been following cryptocurrency for years, so I'm a little bit familiar with with the mechanisms that are required to make it work properly if you wanted to mine it um, or produce it on your own, if you will. And so upstream data is able to mine cryptocurrency, share the revenue with oil and gas companies. Oil and gas companies are able to bring online oil wells that they may have taken offline because they didn't know what to do with all of the excess gas that, that was coming off the oil. And it kind of just seems like a win, win, win. And so I, I thought, you know, if you're an entrepreneur looking for growth opportunities, growth, you know, growth can come from anywhere, literally anywhere. You just have to look around the marketplace and find problems that uh, folks aren't solving or other businesses aren't solving and then figure out a way to go and solve them yourself. And what I really took away from this is that, you know, any business can grow. Generally, growth is marginal if it's not... Um, if it's not creative. And what I mean by that is if you see your competition doing something and you do it, you do it and you do it better, you can grow, but it's marginal growth because everyone's sort of competing on the same basis with the same type of customer. And it usually is just an exchange of market share. But when you look for growth opportunities that are based on nobody being there, then that gives you not a marginal growth opportunity, but an exponential growth opportunity until such time as others catch on. And then you know, they come into the marketplace and they start taking advantage of the opportunity and then your margins start to shrink. But if you're an entrepreneur looking for growth, you just got to look around the marketplace and try to find problems um, that other businesses are having that you could solve for them. And I think upstream data and what they're doing with Bitcoin mining or cryptocurrency mining is, I mean, I just think it's so smart. Um, so hopefully you find, hopefully, um, that gives you, uh, some ideas and then switching gears into, uh, um, an article that I had posted about Lyft. So Lyft is a ride sharing service, much like Uber, it's kind of Uber and Lyft. Those are the two big ones, although Uber is monumentally bigger than Lyft. However, uh, Lyft looking for growth opportunities decided that they would get into the scooter business. Um, and it kind of makes sense. I think, you know, they got the infrastructure to manage riders and, you know, in one sense, cars and drivers, but in the other sense, scooters. So it was kind of like a, a no brainer exercise to say scooters inside of, you know, the inner city are quite popular. We've got the infrastructure. Why don't we just go and buy a bunch of scooters, rent them to people 
and we'll earn some revenue. So um, on paper, probably made a lot of sense, but they decided to go into marketplaces where they didn't have a very strong market presence. And by very strong, my understanding of it was that they just didn't simply have enough of a market presence. So either the cities weren't big enough <clears throat> Um, or there just weren't, they didn't have as many users in those cities as they had in some of the other cities. And so uh, they decided that they would try it and they did it. And they went to a whole bunch of cities and they invested a bunch of money to try and see if they could make this thing work. And then it, you know, it didn't work. And so they, they decided we're going to, we're going to scale back we're going to get rid of the scooter business in some of these smaller markets where instead we're going to focus on these larger markets where we already have a great customer base and a really strong market presence. And you know what? It's kind of a pain dealing with all the different municipalities that we're not accustomed to dealing with. And so uh, it's just been hard for us to grow our customer base. And so we're going to just yank the scooter service. And so I thought, you know, Lyft is a very popular business, very successful business in their kind of in their domain. And this was an experiment, you know, they tried it, could have worked, could have not worked. It was, you know, it was pretty binary. I think it was either going to be a smashing success for them or it was going to be a failure. And so it's been a failure, no big deal. But I thought the key in this particular headline that relates to a lot of entrepreneurs is, uh, as I wrote in the blog, I had mentioned that every entrepreneur walks a fine line each day between falling on their sword and reaching for the moon. And kind of what I was getting at there was, as an entrepreneur, you, you have to have, I guess you have to have enough optimism to continue to pursue your ideas, but then you've got to have, you've got to be self-aware enough to be honest with yourself to say, look, this just isn't working. And as an entrepreneur, your job is to take people and resources, aggregate them together and take advantage of an opportunity. And if you can do that uh, at any kind of scale, then you're able to benefit from it and other people are uh, as well. But sometimes you're just not able to do that well and you made a poor decision. And some entrepreneurs have no problem cutting their losses, but they also have no problem doubling down when it works. And other entrepreneurs can't do either very well in my experience. Some entrepreneurs can't cut their losses because they keep hanging on to hope. Um, and they also, on the other side, can't double down when things are going well because they get way, way too nervous that something is going to go wrong. And so certainly there's no rules for being an entrepreneur. I think that's kind of the unique thing um, uh, that belongs to each entrepreneur is that we sort of have our own mindset. We have our own way of thinking. But in and amongst all of that, if you're going to take risks, you should. Um, entre good entrepreneurs say, I don't take risks. I just make investments and some, some pay off and some don't. But whatever your, your theology is on being an entrepreneur, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot to be said about being honest with yourself and the results that your business is or is not getting. I know that some entrepreneurs put their hands in the air and say, well, I think I'm just doing the best I can. And okay, that might work for a day or a week, but that doesn't work for a very long time because you, you won't, I mean, you're, you know, quite frankly, your business will just run out of money or you're just going to eat up your margin or you're going to have pretty bumpy cash flow that's going to make life very tough. So at some point you kind of got to, you got to decide how you're going to grow. You are going to have to stretch out somewhere and do something. Or if your business is in trouble, you're going to have to make tough decisions. But at the end of the day, you got to be honest with the results that your business is or isn't getting. And I just thought that this about, I, I thought this example in Lyft, which is, has experienced an enormous amount of success, tons of smart people working in their organization, and even they 
had to say, look, we got to shut this thing down. We have to um, get out of these marketplaces where it's not working. Yep, it sucks. We got to lay some people off. Yep, it sucks. We're going to lose some money. But let's quickly realign what is working and let's double down on it or let's work harder to leverage it so that we can make up for this loss and then ultimately begin putting some more money on our bottom line. And I think there's something to be said about that. I think that entrepreneurs uh, should be honest, consider their results, and then figure out whether or not what they're doing is producing you know, uh, a result that's worthy of the work, if you will. And then moving right along, I was able to uh, post an article about uh, my buddy. No, I'm kidding. He's not my buddy. Warren Buffett. Wish he was my buddy. Probably gets that a lot. Um, it was in the news because... I was sort of following this story for a little while. I'd been following it for a few weeks, and then it kind of came to a head. And the long and the short of it is that Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, just, you know, kind of the the mood in the market today is they just have, a you know, a gazillion dollars. They think it's like $113 billion in cash, and they have no idea what to do with it. And, and uh, they ended up making a pretty big purchase, I think, $206 million dollars in a company called uh, Restoration Hardware that's now called RH. And it kind of seemed like pretty boring. In fact, I think maybe even when I put the article on my blog, when I was writing about it, I, you know, I, I, I'm imagining that some people thought, what the heck are you writing about this for? But I listened to an interview with the CEO, who a fellow by the name of Gary Friedman, I believe, he was talking about his business. And as he talked about this business, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, as entrepreneurs, we think we're so unique and we're so special and the things we are doing, you know, well, they might be similar to what someone else is doing. They're not, you know, we're pretty special. But in listening to this fellow Gary talk about this massively successful company that just got an investment from Warren Buffett, I, he kind of talked about sort of the secret of what he was doing and realizing that, wow, we're not, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, I mean, we're special, not that special, um, and we're not as unique as we like to think we are. But what he had done is he had said, look, he leads his team in a way where they can model themselves after uh, some other companies. And so he picked, he talked about Apple, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company, and then LMVH, which is, um, you know, Louis Vuitton and kind of the high-end luxury brand. And he said uh, they model themselves after Apple because they're trying to build, an, and so first of all, restoration hardware, I should just back off, back up a minute. They sell high-end furniture. And that's it. High-end furniture. Very expensive furniture. It's very, very nice. That's what they do. Um, and so that's where maybe the boring, you know, non-exciting thoughts were coming from in the marketplace when it was announced that Warren Buffett had made this massive investment. But if you listen to the CEO, you can kind of go, wow, I get why, why Warren Buffett did this. He wants to invest in smart people running, running great businesses that know where they're going. And this guy kind of checks all the boxes, as far as I could tell. I mean, I'm not Warren Buffett, but sort of seems obvious. So they model themselves after Apple because they're trying to build an integrated ecosystem of products, places, services, and spaces. They model themselves after the luxury uh, brand company LMVH, which is making a run at Tiffany's right now, I think, for like $1.3 billion or something. But they model themselves after... LMVH because they're trying to build a luxury platform so they can earn luxury margins. And then lastly, they model themselves after Berkshire Hathaway, which is infamously or famously known for being able to manage their cash flow, having a low cost of capital, and being able to produce enormous returns. And so as I was listening to this, I thought, wow, you know, 
Every day there's entrepreneurs out there, myself included, that you know, operate in something of a, of a silo. You know, we're pretty disconnected from, from our, our peer group most times. Um, the folks that we might interact with on a social basis, you know, they might be entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs don't exactly like share their, their sob stories all the time. Um, and if they are talking, they're usually not talking about good things. It's usually talking about employees and marriages and all sorts of stuff. But I thought, you know, there are companies that are doing, there are a lot of companies out in the world doing a lot of things, but there are also a lot of companies out there doing, there are aspects of what they're doing, that of what they are doing that an entrepreneur could look to and say, I'd like to do this part of my business like that company does it. And then I'd like to do this part of my business like that company does it. And then, you know, this, this thing over here, I really like what that business does and I think we're going to incorporate that. And so instead of trying to reinvent the wheel as an entrepreneur, which I think many small and medium-sized business entrepreneurs try to do, they, they do think they're special and unique and what they're doing no one else has done. And so they spend so much time and effort reinventing the wheel instead of looking into the marketplace to see that the wheel's already been invented. You just have to figure out what kind of spokes you're going to put into it, what kind of rubber you're going to put on it, what kind of frame you're going to have, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's not... Maybe that's not a great uh, analogy, but the point is, is that you can spend all your time trying to reinvent the wheel, or you can look into the marketplace and borrow ideas from others. And in seeing that, you know, Warren Buffett had invested in this company, RH, I thought, what the heck, what, what could be so special about them? But then when you listen to the CEO talk about notwithstanding their success, they continue to model themselves after businesses that are more successful than they are so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and figure things out on their own. And so then I went to their website and I kind of checked it out and, you know, uh, high-end luxury stuff I think is a little bit lost on me, but I I certainly understand what the point is and why um, luxury brands are as successful as they are. And so as I was going through their website and listening to the CEO, like everything just seemed to line up. And so I thought, you know what, entrepreneurs, if you're trying to grow your business, borrow the best ideas. And then the things that you can't borrow, uh, double down on those and work really hard to make them successful in, in your business. So hopefully... You can you can get a little something out of that. Uh, then I made a post about the big announcement, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what the market thinks of this. I'm not sure if people think that it was underhanded or overhanded. But here was kind of what I'd wrote uh, written. It was about Charles Schwab purchasing Ameritrade TD Credit. And so online stock brokerage, basically people who want to buy and sell stocks. It used to cost you the price of a stockbroker. Then it ended up costing you like. a year, and then it ended up costing you like 99 bucks a month, and then $9 a trade, and then 99 cents a trade. Then Schwab went, you know what? We're done. We're going to let our customers trade stocks at no cost, no commission. And this was done because the discount brokerage business or marketplace is incredibly crowded. Lots of, lots and lots of competition. And so it was sort of a battle of who's got the biggest war chest, who can ride this out while cutting, you know, the knees of everybody else. And so TD uh, Ameritrade and E-Trade were kind of their closest competitors. And they ended up, um, they ended up uh, competing on price down to zero, knowing full well that TD Ameritrade and, and E-Trade wouldn't be able to survive. And then sure enough, they made a run at purchasing TD Ameritrade and that transaction looks like it's going through. And so even though 
many folks listening to this, if any folks listening to this are not running a publicly traded company, I think there is something to be said about competing on price. And I don't think that Charles Schwab, um, I think Charles Schwab and everyone else in the business knew that trading um, people or charging people to trade stocks was eventually going to go away. So then the question became, well, then how do you make money on the other end? And so what TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab do is they is they collect uh, money from their customers. So they have to they're the custodians, if you will, of all the cash that gets traded on their systems. But they get to make money on that. So the money gets uh, to be used, and they can invest it in short term investments and make a return, and so on and so forth. And so trading commissions were um, a revenue line, but they were it was disappearing and these companies had to kind of reconfigure themselves and figure out how to give that away for free or at a very low cost so that they could keep getting assets in the door that they could turn around and either invest themselves or make short-term interest on. And that became the game. And so um, if you're going to be a market, uh, if you're going to be a market leader, um, and you know this is where kind of the underhanded part come. You can you can close you can lower your cost to such a point where your your competition can't keep up, and then they they close up shop. Um, but that's pretty hard to do, I think, for small and medium sized businesses. I think that part of what I got out of this story was that if you're not going to be a market leader, if you're not going to be the number one that can dictate uh, market moves like that, then you've got to figure out how to add more value to the experience that your customers are, are having when they engage with your product or your service. Because if all you're doing is competing on price, then you've sort of got your your Achilles heel uh, exposed. I do know that uh, many small businesses think that that's you know, kind of the only way to compete is on price. And you know what? Maybe that's true. I don't, I'm not involved in your particular business, if that's what your opinion is. But I think if you look into the marketplace and you look at other businesses, you can quickly come to the conclusion that if you're competing on price purely, then you're missing an, op- you're missing an opportunity to go after other customers that are not as price sensitive as you might think they are, right? Why do people buy a Ferrari versus a Honda? Um, the margins are not the same on both of those vehicles, or why do people buy an iPhone instead of a, a Galaxy or, or, or even a no-name brand phone? Because uh, the margins are certainly not the same there. And so if you've never really thought about it, keep in mind that people pay for value, and value is one of those non-mathematical equations that customers compute in their head every time they spend their money. And people will pay disproportionately for a better experience, which uh, is an opportunity that businesses can take advantage of. And so as I was following this Charles Schwab story along, and they were, you know, they were um, cutting their trading commissions down to zero, I just so happened to be reading the biography for Charles Schwab and understanding how he built the company how he got it to where it is today and realized that, you know what, they're really not just a business that is out to make a margin. They have a mission that they are on. They are trying to make it easy for the average consumer to participate in the public markets. And trading commissions was a great way to generate revenue and and enterprise value, but they knew for sure that it wasn't going to be their future. And so within the Charles Schwab business, there are tons and tons and tons of other products and services that they bring um, um, to the front door of their customers, that their customers are able to take advantage of that, quite frankly, TD Ameritrade and E-Trade just simply did not do. Um, Ameritrade 
or TD Ameritrade and E-Trade were really uh, trading platforms. That's what they were, whereas Charles Schwab was more holistic and they, they saw an opportunity to go after a certain type of customer that wanted more than just the ability to trade stocks. And so if you feel so inclined, you can learn about their business. But my point in sharing this was that if you're an entrepreneur competing on price, that that's really the poorest thing to compete on if you're not going to be a market leader. And so you've got to figure out a way to not compete on price and add to the experience that your customers are having when they interact with your product or service, because if they have a great experience, that will be deemed more valuable in their minds, and therefore they will be able to, um, they will be prepared to pay more. And so um, I thought that was important. I, I spent a lot of time arguing with entrepreneurs about this point, and uh, so I'm very well versed uh, in it, and I've had to deal with it even in my own business. And so. I don't know what you think of that, but if you're trying to grow your business, you feel constrained by price, um, or you're trying to fix your business uh, and you feel constrained by price, then maybe go get a cup of coffee or tea or whatever your drink of choice is, sit back and go, you know what, if we had absolutely had to double our price, what would our customers expect from us in terms of the experience and the value that they're getting? And if you can answer that question, then you try it out. And until you start start losing customers, you won't know whether or not you've actually hit any kind of any kind of threshold with them. And um, and that's actually kind of another way to think of it. When was the last time you lost a customer because of price? And if it's sort of less than ten percent of your revenue, then there's an argument to be made that your prices aren't high enough, or that your customers are having such a great experience with your business that you've never really tested how far you can push your pricing before your customers start pushing back. So there's some things to think about. The last story um, that, uh, or last news headline, was that uh, the creator of Burton Snowboards, Jake Burton Carpenter, passed away from. Um, from cancer. And uh, I'm a snowboarder. My, uh, I've got half of my family, half of seven people <laughs> are snowboarders uh, in my home. And so not only um, was this story close to me because of the, you know, the snowboarding aspect, but just because I did, I've listened to interviews with Jake Carpenter before. And when you listen to his story and how he created this market out of just having an enormous amount of passion for the thing that it was he was doing. You know, the world's as cheesy and as corny as it sounds, but, um, you know, the world's a better place. You know, my family goes out to the ski hill most Sundays uh, during the winter. Um, half of us jump on snowboards. And if you think back through my lifetime, I'm 42 years old, you know, snowboards sort of came into existence at the beginning of, of my life. They were considered to be a nuisance and no one really wanted them on ski hills and they were dangerous and all this sort of stuff. But um, Jake Burton, uh, along with others in the industry, created like this this whole marketplace that didn't exist. And it's not just snowboards, you know, there's there's uh, snow pants, there's um, snow jackets, there's gear, there's kind of all these um, these other industries or these other marketplaces that have come off this one market. And then, you know, it's it's an Olympic event, uh, which is, you know, pretty decent as well. So my point was, a lot of times when you look to grow your business, it can be something that you see on paper or something that you understand intellectually. But if you don't have passion for what it is that you're doing, um, you're, I think, I think, um, I think you tap out, you know, I think you get burned out. I think you lose excitement and energy for what it is that you're doing. I've had the opportunity to hang out with some 
really great entrepreneurs from uh, Richard Branson to um, really uh, successful entrepreneurs in my own country, in my own city. And I, I think there is a distinction between the entrepreneurs that are very, that have a, a passion for what they're doing, something outside of their profit and loss statement and their balance sheet that keeps them going, that keeps them motivated, that keeps them um, pushing through the tough times. There's just something else on the table other than their bank account. And so uh, Jake passing away, um, passing out away of cancer, understanding that him and his wife ran the business pretty much together. Um, you know, they got a bunch of offices around the world. They've got a bunch of employees. They've been around for decades doing what it is they do. And, you know, you, uh, you think it's hard to do that if you're not interested in the business, in the product or the service that your business provides. You got to have some passion. You know, he, he just loved what he did. Um, there's just no two ways about it. And the fact that he loved what he did and got to make some money along the way, got to create a marketplace, got to, I mean, that, that, that all just sort of seems to have been, um, great, but not his primary concern. His primary concern was just doing what he loves. And I thought for me as Dylan, I took a lot from that. I took a lot from understanding that you got to be passionate. You know, these podcasts, the blog posts, uh, the things that I talk about every day, um, I do it just because I love it. I love business. I love entrepreneurs. I love the struggle. I love the challenge. I love the achievement, the sense of achievement. Um, and I love that it just doesn't end there. You know, you never really reach, um, a goal line cause there's always another opportunity somewhere that either within your own business or within your team or somewhere, something else that you can be working with. And so for me and connect with that passion piece. And then as I look out into the marketplace of relationships that, uh, I have that I've been able to interact with the relationships I've enjoyed the most are certainly the ones where entrepreneurs have been passionate about what they do because it just the business, the culture, everything just happens in a very different way. When the entrepreneurs aren't passionate about what they do, it's fine. It's fun. I mean, it's okay. But there's just this whole other level of engagement that happens when an an organization being led by an entrepreneur that's passionate about what they're doing even if it's not their business, you know, even if it's what their business enables them to do. I know of an entrepreneur whose business was really just a way to generate revenue and profit so that he could go and put it in the community. And he got his kicks from watching what his money was doing in the community. Um, and that enabled him to come back to the office and get super excited about what he had to work on that day. So anyway, if you're Again, if you're stuck in a moment or you're not feeling very excited or you're not engaged in what you're doing, then maybe you just go back to the basics and you say, like, what am I doing all this for? What What's the reason I have this business? What's the purpose of it? And if if I had all the financial sex, success that I was looking for, then what would I be doing? And I think true entrepreneurs go, I would just keep doing what I'm doing. I think entrepreneurs that aren't passionate about what they're doing, they go, oh, well, let me tell you, I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that. And it has nothing to do with business. It has more to do with, I don't know, maybe accumulation of things or stuff, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. But I think fulfillment and having a meaningful life come from um, having a passion and something greater than your business that you're you're working towards or, or a problem that's greater than you that you could never solve um, or a market that's just so deep you could never fill it. So anyway, that's it. That's all I have for you on uh, this week's episode of News 
entrepreneurs experience. And I hope that you got something out of this. Uh, as I always say, feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Uh, bridgecap.ca is where our company website is. You can also get to my blog. You can get to me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm kind of always available. Uh, lots of text messages <laughs> throughout the week. Um, lots of email messages. And so always happy to chat. If you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to fix fund or grow your business, you're not sure how or you're stuck. Let's chat because maybe there's something I can say or some direction I can give that will just help you get to the next moment that you need to get to. So thanks for tuning in and please make sure to tune in next time.